You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Sam Rosenthal of Project Records, Black Tape for a Blue Girl, and uh, well, we're going to find out if there's any more. <laughs> How's it going, <laughs> Sam? Oh, it's great. Thanks. We're really excited to have you on today. We've done some episodes on albums that are related to Project. Uh, we did the Jeff Grinky album that was reissued by Project. When was that reissued by you guys? Oh, no, it's a quiz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Already we're starting off with a quiz. Oh, time. 93 to 96 in that right, era. Right, <laughs> right. How did you end up connecting with Jeff? I assume I heard his stuff that was on. Was Did he have a few things on Soleil Moon way early on? Or... Um, he definitely worked. He worked in that world for sure. Yeah, one of the labels like that. And I think Cities and Fog wasn't it that there was only the single album release, and he had other material that was in that vein that became disc two. And so, boy, so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Digging yeah, back. I, it, but that was like archive. Um, it wasn't at the very beginning of the archive physical labels. Maybe it was in the. 1518 area so it was a little bit further into archive but not quite sure where the initial connection was i, I feel like it's someone i had known already for years before that record it's such a great yes. album and mm -hmm. your know, project's been going we're into the 30 years over 30 years what was the, the was the tans well, music the very first project release or was there before that yeah that was number six so there was a okay. few before that it was the first lp but the first cassette was 83, so it's like almost 40 years now. Wow. So you have navigated this insane record label world since the 80s. You've seen all the ebbs and flows. The cassettes, the CDs, the vinyl, back to cassettes, to back CDs. Back to digital, back to vinyl. <laughs> Down to digital. I read an interview where you said something to the effect of the sales of physical albums are about 10%. If you were to sell whatever you sold in the nineties, it was, you're down to something like 10% of that. When did you see that all start changing? Um, I'd say 2002 was when it was suddenly like, huh, we have a lot of extras on these albums that we pressed the amount. We used to be able to get to stores and get sold in the first, mm -hmm. you know, six months or whatever. And so 2002 was really the beginning of that, but we weren't in digital yet at that point. So it, it was because of digital, but we weren't really like already out there making the things available digitally. But I mean, 10% is now, it's not even 10% anymore of what, yeah. you know, a similar type of band, but who is newer now would do. And so I think only about a third of what comes out on project has a physical now. It's just, it doesn't make sense for a lot. And when do, you were an early adopter, I guess, of Bandcamp. I think project the Project Bandcamp seemed to be pretty early. Did you see that this is going to be now the new way? Or was it even at the time, this might be the new way? Let's see what happens and maybe we have to adapt to another way. Well, we were already doing all the regular digital and streaming, I, maybe not everything was up for streaming at that point, but there was actually a DJ who probably had a band also in Alaska who recommended it before I knew what it was. And it was sort of like one of those, oh, I, I'm really busy. I don't have time to get this right. thing started. And so when we got it started, it was a digital store, but it wasn't that much of a priority until it just kept on growing. And as digital purchases at iTunes declined, I think we sort of cannibalized those people over to our band camp and people now really like it because of the whole social environment of it, which wasn't there at the beginning, or I don't think we came in. I don't know if we were two or three years into it before we came in, but also the, we sell more of our CDs through Bandcamp than we do through our own web store. Now people just really love Bandcamp. Yeah. We're finding that happens with that across the board, especially you buy the CD off Bandcamp, you get the digital, so you get it right away, but then you get the physical kind of being able to get the best of both, both worlds. So 
I and think also, any way we can directly support artists and labels is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, the thing for us that's really nice is it prevents us having to make a digital store, you know, all the infrastructure right. and all the storage and all the technical problems that would have. So Bandcamp is always keeping their site working. So Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to worry about that hey, on a day-to-day basis. For that. I guess what but, I worry about is every smart idea eventually destroyed itself. It seems like mp3.com, MySpace, whatever you want to go to. And so Bandcamp so far has been really smart about not destroying themselves with some stupid (laughs) move. Yeah. But it's always a worry. (laughs) Yeah. The ephemeral nature of media and the way we receive it. It's very strange. I mean, I think they, they did an amazing thing. They somehow made buying digital attractive to people again when that started mm-hmm. to fade so that alone and again i think it's that people actually do want to support bands and labels and this is an actual way to directly do it so we've always been really supportive of it whether or not we all come from the age of no i want the physical i want the cd i want the lp we understand that we have to adapt and move on and i feel like project is a label that has really learned the art of adaptation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean was that lush garden you just grabbed there yes it was yeah we're not messing around over here <laughs> but, but you know it is true like everyone i think of our cds is broken in some way oh, so i apologize but, for but that that's but the that's best. the love i love the cracked case that, you know yeah because we've had them forever it's just the love yes. you know you just that that where is love to me but that's our joy of having a physical copy is you know we, we still may even listen to it digitally but we'll sit here and like read through the booklet and again oops sorry yeah. look at the artwork <laughs> and uh you know it, it is this experience and and you do have a sense of like nostalgia and time when you have that physical copy that we love mm-hmm. yeah definitely well, from from this new digital era all the way back to some of those early releases. Where did it start? Where did the seed get planted? Where were you at? And you were in Florida. You were physically in Florida, right? In those in the early eighties. Yeah. What were you listening to? Where were you at to finally start your own label and your own music? So I was making a fanzine that was called Alternative Rhythms, and here and there you could find bits of it online. I've never got around to. PDFing them all, but I was writing about all this music, but no one was really hearing the bands because there wasn't the internet. You couldn't just go, Hey, that band sounds cool. I'm going to go see what they sound like. You'd have to go to the right record store to find it. And so I decided to make a cassette of some of the electronic bands I was writing about in it. And so that was the first thing on project. And then I went to a couple of local record stores and left them on consignment. And so it was really you know, whatever that cassette sold 40 copies or whatever. It was really just to kind of make that music so people could hear it. And then there was another compilation. And then I started doing some of my own electronic music. I think I had a track on the first compilation, but so it sort of was project was just as way to me put out my own music. And you mentioned Tom's music, which was the sixth release, which was 84. It was the first on vinyl. Um, and so it, it sort of was just, I guess the fanzine and the label had the same idea, which was exposing people to music that I found interesting. And, but then the, the early, the cassettes were almost all me except for those compilations. And so it was, a, a then there was black tape, the rope in 86 on LP mesmerized by the sirens in 87 on LP. And then there was an attrition best of, which was the first, I, well, I, I have, I have another band called Thanatos with Pat Ogle. So we had one cassette, but the first non me involved playing on a record was the attrition best of um, recollection. And that was 89. So that was when it was kind of like, Oh, I'm starting to set up distribution, getting some press. This could be done for somebody else as well, but I was still in college at that point. So it wasn't like, I thought I was, running a label, you know, I was still doing this thing on the side. How did you 
go, did you have someone that was showing you how to get records pressed and get stuff distributed or was this just kind of figuring it out on your own? Yeah, it was really just figuring it out on my own. Um, yeah, starting to deal with distributors, starting to send out copies for review. And I, I you asked it a bit earlier, like what I was listening to. And I was like listening to Brian Eno and Tangerine Dream and Soft mm-hmm. Cell and Kraftwerk and uh, Mark Allman from Soft Cell. And so I didn't really know where my music fell into what category. And so in the very beginning, I think the distributors didn't either because right. there, there yeah. was there was the gothy kind of thing um that was being distributed but i didn't connect with the right distributors in the very beginning and they were very confused we always like to say goth adjacent not quite yeah, sure. in that pocket <laughs> all right because i think goth is bauhaus and Susie and kind of a rock mm-hmm. band that has yeah. that sound and we redid the first song on the rope that is the more rock version i guess or the way it would have sound if I had a band and recorded in studio. Um, but generally it was way more atmospheric than what most goth music was at the time. What kind of equipment were you using then back in those early days? So the earliest cassettes were basically two tape decks and I would play something on my, first I had a Moog Concertmate MG1, which I still have, which was Radio Shack sold this keyboard. And then I got a Korg Poly 61. And so basically I would record something on tape A, put it in the player, play it while playing over it, record on tape B, put tape B in player A, play over it to tape C. And I still have all those cassettes, you know, that are... (laughs) But it's not like you can go back and remix it because you buried, you know, four or five tracks deep the first piece. Mm -hmm. So, but... Yeah, so there's this vault full of them. And I still have the, the I still have a Poly 61, though I finally got a MIDI version of it. And the Moog, which, you know, makes nice Moog sound for this thing sold at Radio Shack, it, it needed to be completely taken apart. And all, it had all this goo inside because all the insulation melted over time. Oh, yeah. So, but um, it's funny because I basically use all the same keyboards I was using in the 90s, except I got one newer thing. So I, I guess some people are really into the newest gear and I kind of don't care. I'm more like about, I know how these work. I know the sounds I can get and that's making that song out of it. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's what's that's what's on the Tons music LP. Those, those synths. Yeah. I mean, the core synths on Tons music are, are, well, the only two synths are the poly 61 and the, the Moog. And then there's a yeah. Dr. Rhythm drum machine, which Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it anymore. I don't remember who I sold that to, but. I mean, uh, I don't, I, I mean, with Black Tape for a Blue Girl, I was kind of opposed to drums. There was a couple tracks on the first two albums for drums, and then I used a drum machine for a while. And and then on Tenderotics, Brian, who was in the Dresden Dolls, played the drums. So then it's like, okay, now I have a talented drummer, but Brian's also more subtle than a lot of the drummers that I knew who kind of, it wouldn't make sense to fill all the space on a Black Tape song with drums. Yeah. It's not the kind of song. So with black tape, the rope being, you can see the early, the Tans music stuff. You can kind of hear that early era into the rope, but as the records start going on, it really, these atmospheric strings synths are going to then be the predominant aspect of black tape. Yes, the how, evocative landscape. How did you arrive at these sounds, these the strings? Where did that come from for you? So I would first say, you know, uses the term non-musician. And I would say I'm mostly a non-musician in that I don't know music. I don't know what it is I'm playing and why those notes work together. You absolutely so. fooled us because in my <laughs> mind, you went to school for composition. So. No, no. Kudos to you. <laughs> yeah. So I just kind of, oh, hey, I like how that sounds. That's sounding like what I want. And I think that, I mean, I think over the years, I've gotten better at actually thinking what I want to make and making that. Where in the beginning, I think it was sort of like a lot of trial and error and a lot of frustration in trying to make what I wanted to hear. Um, but like a song like Slow Blur Off the Rope, which I have no idea what I, 
what I played and why it works. <laughs> you know, it just does. And I mean, I was also really listening to a lot of 4AD back then, this Mortal Coil and the Contra Twins yeah. and Dead Can Dance. And I guess probably I listened to Eno more than Bowie, but together they also did albums like Low that had sort of that atmospheric quality. And so I think all of that was sort of brewing around in my head at the time that sort of influenced the direction of Black Tape. And you would always have other vocalists. Have, have you ever done vocals? Um, a couple songs I do sing on, but okay. I, I'm not really a lead vocalist, so I try gotcha. not to. So we, it was it always in your head that you were going to get a, other vocalists. You would be the creator of the music, but you're going to have the other vocalists, male and female, however it, the combination worked. Was that always your plan? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I met Oscar because I I saw his band play live, The Sleeper Reason, in Florida in 84, maybe. And then they were on the cover of the fanzine. And so as I was sort of conceiving Black Tape to have vocals, I was like, well, I can't sing the way I want to sing. Oscar certainly can. I should ask him to sing these songs. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I look at it like kind of I'm a director that and I wrote the script and I sort of have an idea for the emotion of the character. And then it's bringing in people who are actually talented at singing or playing to perform the pieces that I came up with. And if I had a lead vocalist singing voice and I would sing, but you know, it's kind of like when the rhythm guitarist sings the backing vocal, it's like, yeah, he's, he's okay as a backing <laughs> vocalist, but <laughs> You don't want to hear. I, I just don't have personality in my voice to be a front person. Oh, yeah. And so Oscar, I think it's the first six albums. He was the vocalist. And then after that, he, he sort of retired from music at that point. So there was just other um, reasons why he stopped with the band versus any problem between he and I. Right. And then he he was back on these fleeting moments in 2016. Well, and you didn't play a lot of live shows. Was it just not a priority or, or was there another reason? Well, we didn't play the first decade. And then in 96, the Project Fest, Pat, who worked for me, who was in Thanatos, had the idea to do a festival. And so Oscar sang, Lucien sang. It, it was really the um, most of the band of Remnants of a Deeper Purity without Vicky. And so we did that show and it was really good. And then a year later, we did the second Project Fest. But Oscar was in Miami, had a family, had, you know, a job. Yeah. And it, I mean, he was interested in touring. It just it didn't make sense, I think, uh, logistically, probably. So we did tour. I mean, I don't know if it's 140 shows Black Tape has done. There's some over. We did a lot of shows in, let's say, 97, 98, 99. And then there was a tour for Hello Star and then a tour for Tenorotics. But um, it was sort of mostly in the late 90 period, but it, did, it didn't have Oscar and Juliana only sang, I don't know, 12 of the shows or something like that. So it didn't necessarily have like the front person like the records do. Yeah. So it was more ethereal most of the time. Oh, wow. That sounds great, honestly. Yeah, we did one show in Mexico City. I'm going to guess 98 that Oscar sang at. That was like, it was really great. I mean. The Project Fest, I think, had a thousand people in Mexico City, probably had like 800 people. They were just like massive shows. They were really nice. And you said 96 was the first Project Fest? Yeah. Yeah. In Chicago. What was the impetus to put that together then? Did you, was that your idea? Was it, you said Pat was a part of that too, putting those together? I mean, the, the thing was that I don't know if Santos, Pat's band, had toured yet, but it was kind of going out to clubs and having unknown sound systems and bands that weren't just rock bands sort of confuse sound men quite often. Oh, we so have was, experienced that for our entire yeah. lives for sure. Yeah. I'm like, there's only seven inputs. It's not confusing. There's seven. You just mix them. But, you know, it's not the normal seven. And so the idea was to do it in one location where we could have more control over the sound and the environment and have a you know, better opportunity. It was a much bigger, the Vic's a big venue. It's like, I think a whole 1200 people or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good sound system. There's a crew. You can go in at like noon or whatever and set up with the band. So it's not, okay, show starts in an hour because you should set up your stuff. You know, right. it's such a rant mm-hmm. on 
non-rock bands to do that. And so it was really to have more control over the sound. And it was, there were each two day festivals, 96 and 97, 96 attrition came from England. Sean from Eden came from Australia and there were people, Dirk Videmana came from Belgium. So there was definitely more control, but it was also, I mean, like it was a time when a thousand people would come to a festival. So, you know, we were able to do it. It would be much harder, I think, for us to get a crowd like that now. Oh, yeah. When did you sort of realize the label had had grown to a size that you could do something like a festival in a, a thousand plus person venue and fly over these artists? Like at what point did it turn from sort of figuring it out to like, oh, we have something here? So I was doing computer graphics when I got out of school and it was pre-internet era and 89, 90, I was doing that. And then in 91, I was like, this label is way too busy for me to be out of town for weeks at a time, unable to communicate with the people who wanted to, you know, deal with the label. And so I realized in 91 that it, it really had to be my job if I wanted it to continue and not just something I did when I had time. So in 91 is when I kind of stopped doing other work and just was doing all the label and 92, 93, Love Lies Crushing, Lycia, Love Spirals Downwards, all having releases. It was just, and Black Tape for Blue Girl, it was just suddenly there was a, a number of bands that people were interested in and we were getting more distribution. So it, it just really became, besides the mail or just dealing with the you know distributors and press for the label became a full-time thing. So I moved to Chicago in 96 and I don't really know why we believed we would get enough people to cover the cost of doing the festival. But I think the idea was, you know, even if there's 300 people there, it's good for the label to have the festival and the music presented in that way. So having that many people and more than covering the cost was probably a bonus at that point. <laughs> It's just unknown, I think. Well, you mentioned a bunch of sort of what I think of as as the the flagship bands for Project Love's Lives Crushing and Lycia and, and Black Tape for a Blue Girl. Uh, but also, you know, for me, I sort of came to Project through Solly Moon and that world. So like Vidna of Mana and Steve Roach and those sort of things are, are a lot closer to me. How did you balance doing sort of and, and obviously like the bands we're talking about are not rock bands in, in any traditional sense, but balancing that with the like more ambient atmospheric sort of music you were putting out. And, and how did you find the distributors responding to that stuff in the nineties? Yeah. So the second not me band I put out, I believe was, Oh, Yuki conjugates peyote. <laughs> a, a fantastic album. <laughs> yeah. It was on multi-mood and I think it had gone out of print possibly on multi-mood. And I heard it because of our mail order. We were somehow getting it and distributing it. Oh, I was like, that's a great album. Why is it not available? Oh, yeah, let's put it out, you know. And I really like Equator, the one Soleimun put out, the, the next one after Peyote. I, that is like one of the regrets that I didn't put it out on Project Album, just because <laughs> I just love Equator. And so how did we balance it? I think at that point, you know, the Ali Odier album, the Oyuki Conjugate album, or uh, a bit of mana album were still sort of few, fewer than the goth dark wave side albums. So I don't know if the lab, the distributors, they didn't have a problem with it, but they were probably more focused on the ones that were selling more, which um, Black Tape and Lycia and Love Spirals Downwards were the three that were, you know, that to different levels. Um, but to me, it was always like, what music do I like that I think the people who like Project will like? And so I never really had a, a, you know, a conflict in my mind about them being part of the label. And also because we were doing the mail order, because, okay, this is all pre-internet. So people are writing in letters, asking for a catalog. We're mailing the catalog. They're sending in a check in the mail to order something. And so, you know, they were already hearing this other music because they could get it from us. And, and then there was the Hyperium label out of Germany. We started distributing and also Cold Meat Industry. Of course. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, like Charles Soleilman, he's here in Portland, too. I've known him since whenever, very early 90s, and we were selling some of their stuff. So the mailer was a, probably more diverse than the label was at that time. And did you ever release things on Project that uh, you got like strange reactions to? Like one of one of my favorite records is that uh, Steve Roach, Roger King, Dust to Dust album. Uh, but it's a I don't. 
I mean, it, it makes sense that it's on project, but I don't know where the hell else that would come out or something like that. So uh, did people embrace the weirder stuff or did they, did you, did you get pushback from like regular customers that wanted love spirals downwards or something? No, I don't, I don't think the pushback was from customers. I mean, I do think there was, I, I just remember more people like complaining about Mortis or something like that. <laughs> okay. And not because of the music, but like some mom writing in that you're selling demons, you know, do not sit. There was some catalog return with like Christian messages on them and stuff. Just, you know, don't indoctrinate our children or whatever. So, wow. So (sighs) I know some people used to get their mail like at general. What do you ever call the general delivery at the post office? Mm -hmm. Right. right. I forget what you call that now. But yeah. So there were some people who were concerned about the. Or what was the Agost on Cold Meat Industry? The oh, more like witty kind of yes. stuff. Yeah, one of the great albums of that era. One of yeah, the great albums. Some people didn't. Some parents didn't care for that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, I was going to ask you what your mail scene was like. Like, how much physical mail were you receiving? Uh, oh my and god! Sending out, it must and just sending been out. Nuts. I can't imagine. So we, uh, god, when was it? I was still in. Los Angeles. So it was pre, it was like, let's say 93, 94, I would do these ads in spin magazine, like mm-hmm. a little bitty one inch box in the back of spin. And I'd get like 1200, 1500 people writing for the catalog. From like one <laughs> Wow. And, and I was doing all the sorting and everything of myself at that time. And so I'm like preparing like 20,000 catalogs in my living room, sorting them <sighs> all by zip code. And yeah, there's, there was just tons of those catalogs that went out every month. My partner at the time started doing the mail order because there was just no more time for me to do it. And it was tons of mail. And then we moved to Chicago and a guy who worked for me, he already had an 800 number when he had a record store. So we started using mm-hmm. the 1-800 number for orders. And, and then, you know, the mail amount decreased, but that was still pre-internet. Well, I guess we were doing some emailing at that point, but. We always say pre-ubiquitous internet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just telling my partner about faxing people and, you know, that communication yeah. with people. <laughs> it felt great. Well, especially like with, you know, <laughs> European labels, because you weren't going to call them and talk on the phone about little things you just needed to dealt with. So there was just lots of faxing back and forth. Wow. The So how then did you get in contact with Lycia Love Spirals Downward. Did they send you stuff? Did you know them and personally at all? How did those relationships begin? Yeah, both of those bands actually just sent me something. I believe Love Spirals Downward's tracks were like already finished, where with Mike from Lycia, he had, I guess it later became the Wake album, but it was sort of like diverse, different tracks that, you know, maybe it was a tape that had a track that ended up on Ionia and, some that were on wake or some that never got released. And, and so I, with Ionia, Mike came to my studio and we mixed it at my place after sort of selecting from all these different tracks that had been created where love spirals downwards were pretty much Ryan was mixing and doing everything himself. So I'm, I'm going to guess that Ryan pretty much said, okay, eventually here's, here's the tracks for the album. You know, that's ready where Mike, I think at that point, was looking, I mean, not producing in the sense that I was already there in the studio telling what might work, but helping out a little bit more because I had at that point four black tape albums or something like that by the time mm-hmm. Ionia. Let's see, Ionia was right before Lush Garden. So there were three black tape albums out and one that was probably done around that time. And then Love Life Crushing, his release was already completely done as a cassette. Um, blow eyelash wish but then i think he remixed like scott does he rearranged and remixed the whole thing for what came out on project and soul whirling somewhere was another one who michael plaster came to my studio and we mixed his first album maybe mixed the second album too at my place and you know everything i had was pretty primitive but i guess it was more advanced than what he had at that time so you know we did it that way well there's definitely a, a very homemade quality especially mm-hmm. to something like love lives crushing where it's just this great noise and textural noise and then these great vocals and you can really feel the there's something private about it and the and the lycia stuff and so it feels like 
and, and then, you know, like you're saying, it was you were using these early synths doing this yourself. So there's a really great homemade quality, I think, to and a lot intimacy. of that era. Very yeah. intimate. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really exciting. I mean, do you recall that energy when you were getting those demos and putting the things together? Was it just this everyday just energy of putting everything into the label and on the, these bands and all these connections. Well, the one thing about the intimacy is I don't think any of us like recorded demos and then recorded songs. Right. You know, we, it was, this we is made it. the song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we weren't going into, I mean, I have recorded vocals with Oscar actually in a studio in Miami when he lived down there. And there's a different experience of being in a studio recording versus um doing it yourself at home and just sort of oh i think i'm gonna add this one little thing to it i think i'm gonna try this a little bit differently because in the studio you're always looking at the clock right mm-hmm. and, oh yeah and you get i mean you get something i think i got better vocals in the studio than i would have gotten in my house at that time just because of the equipment where the rope was recorded the vocals are in oscar's living room you know right right and so when I listen to it, you know, you can hear that they're, I mean, they're kind of noisy and they're kind of, you know, in that moment. Let's see. Lycia love spirals down. No, sorry. Lycia soul whirling summer love lights crushing and Juliana's band Skinner box, which never was on project, but was, you know, in the same sound, they were all in Arizona. And then uh, black Taper blue girl and love spirals downwards was in Los Angeles. So people, I remember people kind of saying that we were a Southwest label, you know, which is just, <laughs> A total coincidence, yeah. I, but it is true. I mean, attrition was in England. Oiki Conjugate was in England. Eden, which came a little bit later, was in Australia. But sort of the core, and then Steve Roach was in LA, but I think he'd moved to um, Tucson by that time. And so the, there was a lot of LA, Phoenix, Tucson on the label at that point. But it wasn't like, you know, we were all in different cities. It wasn't really like we we hung out or anything. It wasn't... Um, you know, it wasn't like an L.A. scene where we were all around in the city going to clubs or seeing each other play or whatever. And I mean, maybe Love Lights Crush. I saw Love Lights Crushing play in Tucson, um, Beautiful Noise Festival. But I, I don't think I don't know if Lycia didn't play until Stark Corner. I don't know if they played shows before that, but they did. a. We put together a short California tour, maybe three or four cities on um, the live album came out for from some of those shows. Oh yeah. They had done, they had done a beautiful noise, I think in Arizona as well, because that long track on the live albums recorded mm-hmm. there. Right. But yeah, so it wasn't, I don't know. You, you imagine different scenes like, I don't know, Iggy pop and Alice Cooper and all the other bands in Detroit in the like early yeah. seven, you know, but it wasn't like that. Unfortunately, it would have been nice. Well, even everybody living in Los Angeles is almost too far away from each other at times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, the three of us all live a mile or two away from each other and we are on screens right now. So that's just <laughs> I think that's how it goes uh, out here. Yeah. For sure. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I went to school in Orange County and once like my friends moved up to L.A. and stuff, I was like, well, we'll see each other a couple times a year, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're in a different state. <laughs> yeah, and it's only up to five, but it can be yeah. three hours to get there. So, <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> now, did you design the project logo? Yeah, sure. literally one of the greatest, most memorable yes. fonts of all time. Now, you said you were going to school well, for design, right? Well, no, those are rub off letters that it was. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. No way. You remember, I like Shark that. Pack? Oh, oh, yes. Wow. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you Scratch. just did that and put it together. Yeah. So it's, it's a, I, I never remember the name of the P font, but the rest of it's Caslon Antique. Okay. And, but it's different than what you see uh, the digital versions of those fonts because they were the older made right. for rub off mm-hmm. versions. So there's slight difference. But I went to school for TV film, actually. Oh, okay. And then I, um, then I got into computer graphics as, you know, a job. But it wasn't, I didn't, I just can design. I didn't go for it though. Right. I mean, it's just one of those logos. It's just that great thing though. You you see, you see project and you're just immediately. It's so recognizable. It's just Uh there, but it's that great thing of all great record label logos. I mean, you were just, it must've been 
you just knew that you knew you had to have the logo of the font <laughs> and, just, and don't stop using it. Oh yeah. yeah. Never, that's been the, I think the first cassette didn't have a logo, but that was, I think on the second cassette. And then from then on, I mean, it sets the stage yes. immediately. It's, How long uh, did you dub all your own cassettes? Oh, I, I was still dubbing cassettes in 89. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. for too long. Yeah. Ashes in the brittle air. Um, I was, oh, okay, I'll sell 10, whatever. I'll dub them. And they kept selling. I was cutting the CD booklets apart to make the covers. And, <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, you know, I should have got these made because I've been dubbing so many <laughs> But at some point, I started making them instead of dubbing them. But yeah. Oh wow! So those are there's hand dub yeah. versions of those albums out there. Yeah, um, I don't think I've ever seen one. The hand I've cutting seen, is the killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, eventually you start xeroxing it because a lot of the covers were xerox black and white, but on yeah. colored cardstock. Mm-hmm. And then you put all the lines on it, so the crop lines outside yeah. of the borders. But there was a store here in portland called little axe and they had a couple of the cassettes they bought from somebody's collection from um gosh i can't remember which ones now but they they had some just weird 80s electronic music that somebody sold them i think they had some chuck van zyle and some other things but uh, yeah i I was actually remembering ali odia his album under unholy ritual i licensed from his label so right some bands i guess i put in the category they were originally on project that's where they started and then he already had i don't know how many releases or vinda mana already had a, a number of his self-released cassettes mm-hmm. before i put out the first one i put out was memories compiled and that was like 94 so he had a lot of stuff before right. that already and with steve roach probably he self-released and then he was on different labels he was on celestial harmonies he was on hearts of space and so his first actual album on project was the uh well of souls collaboration with vinda mana so he sort of came into the label slowly for through collaborations and then eventually with his own albums. Your relationship with Steve Roach has continued mm-hmm. to this very day. And it seems like a lot of the focus has been on a lot of his records, Forest Fang, a lot of the dark ambient stuff. Is that just your passion in this day and age right now? Is that the stuff that you're really mostly drawn to? Well, I think it's sort of where the fans have stuck with the label or moved towards. I'm not sure, you know, which one it is, but the, you know, just as the label seeing what's selling and where things are coming from, because like Voltaire digitally has the biggest selling albums, but he's self-released his own stuff for quite a while now. And so while Project still has, is it the first five six, some number like that of Voltaire's albums on um, over time. Like Lycia took their albums back and Love Spirals Downwards took their albums back. There's a few Lycia that thing came back to project. After I was they say, were you, yeah. Mm-hmm. You recently have done some of the reissues, right? Yeah. Um, Ionia, a day in the start corner. And then there's four of like the second period Lycia, mm-hmm. but they're like now working with an Italian label. And so generally, I mean, that's actually great. These Italian labels putting out all their vinyl which we just get it and we sell it to the mail order without having to deal with the drama. Oh, of the yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, so yeah. I'm like that, that, you know, I was in touch with the guy. I'm like, that's great. You guys are putting it out, you know, but um, Steve is really prolific as you know, and yes. um, it, I, I'm totally, I'm totally fine with that. Some labels, one of the reasons Steve liked project was I wasn't going to tell him what to do. You know, right. Steve knows what he's doing. He doesn't need some label that, thinking it out for him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need that. So I was just like, yeah, what do you want to put out? Let's, let's do it. And you're just, he sends it to you and you're good. It's good to go. Well, I mean, I do the, the graphic design on right. pretty much everything, but as far as the audio goes, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I proof it to make sure there's no, like something happened in the mastering. If it had, there was one album that had a pop in it, you know, or sometimes you hear a click or something, yeah. but, but there's, not a lot of artists in the label kind of are in need of the sort of more hands-on with the music side. I think it's just, it's become much easier to record at home, I think, and have a good, a better sounding thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, Love Lies Crushing. There's an artist, Benjamin James Stewart, who I put out a digital release from them. And it's, 
it's in the Love Lies Crushing vein, but it doesn't have vocals, but it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of that glitchy ambient noise. And so Benjamin's 21. So it's sort of like a, a new generation doing something similar to what project people like. Oh, excellent. Awesome. Yeah, love the Love Lies Crushing. Those that are, those records are just so, so fantastic. Now is Steve one of the few people who really plays live currently that you, that you're working with? I mean, I know, I know we're saying that in, in, in the world where live shows happen, used to happen every day, but you know what I mean? In general, he seems to be someone who does do live shows. Well, Voltaire would be the one who plays live the most. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And he is, I mean, he's doing shows now too. He's, he does fly in for shows. Steve's last maybe five shows have been streaming shows that Mm -hmm. he's done. He did a time room fest not quite a year ago. That had three nights, I think, of artists performing. But I mean, I personally love live stream shows. They're shows, you know, and and I'm watching on my TV and it's big and I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> Bumping People into anybody. You can yeah, sit yeah, down. Yeah. And all the videos are up on YouTube from that festival. So, you know, they can be watched anytime. So it's great. So we have a new Black Tape for a Blue Girl album, The Cleft Serpent. How is your approach? Hey, there it is. Ooh. Look at that. A nice final a Very nice. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> How has your approach to working changed throughout the years? And then obviously, especially in these past two, three years with everything changing. Well, yeah, the interesting thing with the new album, The Cleft Serpent, is I did not work in person with the band. John recorded in Los Angeles and Henrik recorded in Sweden. And I've never met Henrik or spoken to him. So it's, oh, really? I just find it wow. entertaining having a band member you've never met. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, how, how did you connect? Um, there's an artist from Italy named Jarguna who has 21 releases on Project Now. And he did a collaboration with Henrik. And so I met him through that release. And then in 2020, I was doing a, a tribute to Timothy Leary album. So I asked him to play on a couple songs. And when he sent me his tracks, I was like, that sounds like Black Tape for a Blue Girl. That that needs to be a Black Tape for a Blue Girl. And I had been conceiving the Clef Serpent album and knowing I wanted a string player, but I hadn't met one. And then the pandemic came, so it was even harder to meet one. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yep, that that would do it. You know, if, if Henrik wants to play on these tracks, it will be what I have in mind. So, um, So that was... You know, that was all different because the, the previous string player, they were here in Portland. And then Vicky, who plays on Remnants, was in mm-hmm. Florida and she kind of stopped doing music at some point. So I hadn't had a musician like Vicky who just emotionally could do what the songs needed. Um, where when I recorded with Vicky, sometimes in my house and sometimes at a studio in Miami, it would just be like, okay, Vicky, play on this. And then every time it was completely different. So I only had eight tracks at the time. So often it was like, that was it. You know, there's nothing right. we need to change, nor really. It's not like you could do two takes. There wasn't enough empty right. tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And so with Henrik now, though, I send him the song and then he sends me back six, eight tracks of instruments and a stereo mix of what he's done. And so oh, I can hear yeah. how he imagines it. And then sometimes it's like, okay, I'm like on this one thing we're working on. The first half of the song I just used as mix, but then when the vocals came in, I needed to sort of break it out differently so that it didn't fight with the vocals. But it's definitely been different recording without being in the same room, but it's also, if what I'm getting back is great, you know, the process is fine. <laughs> yeah. And and with John, um, he's recording in LA. I, I provide like the lyrics I've written in a guide vocal for, you know, here's the melody here's where it goes right. on the music. And then I'm working with people who are talented who can then make that into a, a listenable and really interesting performance versus what I'm giving them to start with. I guess John had been a fan of the band when he was a teenager in the nineties and he, he was from New York. And so his band opened for us at a festival in Boston once. And so we really hadn't been in touch until maybe starting two years ago, we got back in touch again. Um, oh yeah, when Steve Roach played in '19 in Pasadena, he oh, right we, we went to dinner before the show, and so you know I, it was sort of an experiment to see if his style fit with what I was doing, and it did, and it's great. And it's the first album that has 
vocals on every song and only one singer on every song. And something that we've always noticed, but especially leading up to this interview, we've been immersing ourselves in the project world. When we talk about Lycia, Loves, Lies, Crushing, and Black Tape, the Black Tape vocals are, they're not covered in effects and reverb. They're very upfront. Mm -hmm. They're very clear. And throughout to this day, it's it's that. And there's, I think, Terry, you, you call it the, the very, very human. Yeah. Yeah, there's an absolutely like human element where it doesn't seem hyper affected. Was that always an intention, something you always wanted to do? That's interesting because I kind of think they're too buried on the early records. I think they have too much effects. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you compare it to like overloaded sure. reverb yes. on, yeah. on things, to, I guess comparatively to me, it feels very bare and up front. Well, I think also Black Tape has more written melodies for the vocals. I guess Tara has maybe perhaps more written, more performed melodies than maybe Mike's at times. Mm. Though, I mean, they do have melody. It's just, I think they're not maybe as dramatic as Black Tape, let's say. Yeah, it's a different, mm -hmm. different approach for sure. Yeah. And so part of not putting them that far back is because they are doing more of a, a thing where, you know, Mike has great lyrics. I'm not saying he doesn't have the content. It's just where he puts them is different. And, um, so, yeah, it was definitely always about it was communicating that stuff in a more clear way. I think I mean, I think that Mike's lyrics are a little poetic. They have a little bit less direct storyline, let's say. There's yeah. a story to them, but it's a little bit more you can interpret it, where I think a lot of black tape is a little more follow. Here's the story. And so yeah, losing parts of the narrative, yeah. sure. Yeah. The losing part of it would be taking away from the understanding the narrative of the song. Um, but like, I think, I think that was like a drawback of black tape when we played live was we didn't have like Oscar, the very direct lead vocalist singing the songs and then the sound men who didn't know what to do. And then they kind of got mushy, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess like my song turbulence in the torment of uh, flesh garden that I sing is makes more like a Lycia song and then I'm just sort of in the mix with a lot of effects on it but that wasn't the overall idea yeah well, I, I think paired with the the lyrics it does give this feeling of exposure because it, it is something that's very open and raw and, and uh -huh. I, I mean we're massive Lycia fans the other Tara and the other Mike um absolutely love them and I love the the drench in reverb and the ephemeral vocals and just the haze of that. But I, I think that it, it is two different feelings. Mm -hmm. And the black tape lyrics, especially the early records are, I think Tara said raw. It is, it feels very raw. It feels very direct and very personal. Yes. Intimate. And it continues the, there's a very personal feeling throughout the entire work but this new record is is a conceptual story that's a little different from something like remnants of a deeper purity how how do you approach lyrics now as opposed to some of those early records yeah you know i i kind of think that as you get older and sort of like deal with your issues <laughs> You know, you have less of this need to scream them out, you know, because right. you've sort of worked on them elsewhere. And, you know, and so I think that sort of reflects a change over time in the content of the lyrics where, you know, the person who wrote the rope or mesmerized or ashes was sort of a mess, you know, as far <laughs> as not dealing with the, the, the situations that lead to the lyrics. And mm -hmm. so I think that, it was probably around as one of flame where I kind of felt like, okay, how do you write songs now that you're not like, as just ah, screaming all the time. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> what do you do? So the cleft serpent is a concept album. And while there are feelings in what the characters are saying, I, I see them as like, well, but you're creating words for these, these characters where when I was talking with John, John kind of felt it, 
it is an emotional album. And I guess for me, it's harder to see it because I'm coming up with a story that has emotions as opposed to I was just feeling that emotion right then. Like in The Matchmaker, it's just sort of about, it ends with humans' inability to just leave things alone. They've always got to mess around with things, screw it up and destroy things. And, you know, that is a feeling that people might have, oh, I screwed that up again. But I was still looking at how do you say this for these characters to tell this part of the story. So it's there, but it's it maybe it's a little harder for me to feel it. Right. I mean, it feels like Remnants, there was something about that record that was some sort of really big emotional purge. Would you say that's probably pretty accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's been like, I guess, betrayal on previous songs and songs after that, but I think there was a lot of feeling of betrayal in uh, For You Will Burn Your Wings Upon the Sun or something like that. You know, I love that you started in a fanzine, like you started with this passion and then everything evolved from there and just keeps evolving, you know, over decades. But how how do you retain that? Because like even listening to you now and seeing the output of work that you have, you seem to have retained that passion for music and art. Like what what keeps that going? I mean, I think with Black Tape that almost after every album is done, I feel like that could be the last album. That would be fun. That would be a good statement. There you go. And then usually I procrastinate a lot. And then it's like two years later, I'm like, oh, I, I guess I could work on something else. And then I start doing it. And then for a while, it's like, yeah. And then you get really obsessed with it. And then the mixing process is total OCD obsession about little clicks that nobody will ever hear. <laughs> And then it gets done and you're like, yeah, that could be the last album I ever make. That'd be yeah. okay. <laughs> and so what I'm trying to do this time is not stop <laughs> so that mm-hmm. I could keep going. I mean, Steve Roach has the advantage of he never stops. He's like an athlete. He is always working, yeah. you know, and I get distracted by project for a year or two. And then I start, oh, I'm really rusty. I don't know. I don't know what this is. What am I doing here? I've been doing a lot of crowdfunding, reissuing older albums on vinyl Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I'm about to start on a Chaos of Desire uh, 2 LP CD issue. Martin from Attrition has been remastering it and sounds so much better now. And so there's part of the involvement. I mean, like when I started my, um, it was first Patreon and now I do it at Bandcamp. Having that in a way was just to keep in touch with the people who care about what I do but also sort of guilt myself into not, not doing anything. You right. Know? Right. <laughs> yeah. There's people who care, do something. And so, you know, <laughs> That's so a good motivation. Out. I have like one of the things the patrons, the patrons have is a dad of black tape rehearsing in 99 when Vicky played one of the few shows she played with us. And so it's just like, Oh, Hey, look, that's cool. That's interesting. You know, it's, I haven't heard it in 20 something years. And so, you know, digging this stuff out and for chaos, I was going through, first I went through all the dats that had all the mixes on it to get the mixes to remaster it. But then just last week and I started digging out all the cassettes of the demos and the first time I recorded this bit or that bit and just, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff. And then there's these weird crappy songs. In, oh, I don't know. Can you say crappy? There's these weird Oh, oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Spicy. <laughs> the things that were like, yeah, I see why I never finished that idea. <laughs> but you're like making it available to people so they can check it out. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, in the patron area, there's one file, which is like all three of the dats of all the mixes where you could hear, you could maybe hear marginally different things on the mixes. And I'll do like a, three of the cassettes at once and one thing people can listen to. And, you know, just just most, some of the stuff, you know, and then there's some weird things in there too. (laughs) So that's, that's such a great way to do it. But that's, but that's why I do think of you as someone who has adapted to a lot of the changes doing a Patreon, you know, that wasn't an option yeah, you know, taking advantage or of even just thinking of that idea, that up. having that idea to keep in touch. And I just feel that that's been a huge strong point of project and of black tape and, and what you do is adapting to the changes. Well, back in the mail order era, you know, we would get a lot of fan mail and you would, we would get communication and start writing with people. And 
And then into the late 90s and 2000s with the internet, it wasn't the same, you know, it wasn't the same kind of communication. So part of the patron, uh, the patron stuff is, you know, just being able to talk to people and like Ashes in the Brittle Air, I did maybe it's two years ago now. And there's, there was one fan named Randy who just loved that album. And he knew there was like six songs that I never finished or never mixed. They were finished. Mm-hmm. And so he'd been asking me about them for 15, 20 years, I think already. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, Randy, I'm finally going to transfer the digital, the eight track to digital so I can mix them properly. And so I mixed them properly. And it's like, oh, they finally sound like I wanted them to sound. I have, you know, I had an eight track tape. One track was MIDI or simply whatever, whichever it was. And then I was mixed on this really old, supposed to be a live band board. And I could just never do it because this, the beginning of the track has Sue singing, the middle of the track has some keyboards and the end of the track has a violin, let's say. It's like, <laughs> I didn't have the control on this 12 channel board to do mm-hmm. that. So I could finally mix it right on a chaos. I, I've, I've done a few like kind of new mixes of the songs, but basically I just took almost all of me out. So you can hear Oscar and Juliana and, um, and Vicky just, you know, cause like I said, to me, I think chaos of desire is probably the most reverbed and processed of the albums. Um, so I kind of feel like some of the vocals got lost on that one. So it's kind of nice to hear them much cleaner, much more in front now. I'm looking forward to that. It's such a great Randy record. stuck with it. Hey, yeah, that's right. Shout out oh, to yeah. Randy. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a guy um, named Eric in Connecticut, possibly who, loves chaos and um once when i was we'd been in touch by mail and once when i was doing my, the reading tour for rise like okay let's just meet go out to dinner you know do that so you know it but i don't i don't feel like there was as much connection with the people who listened to the music when i guess remnants or um a flame came out they were they were selling a lot of records but i didn't feel as connected to who was hearing them mm-hmm. What kind of runs were you doing at the sort of height of popularity and CD sales and such? Well, Remnants, I think, is around 16,000 CDs sold. Whoa. <laughs> and so wow. we probably started with like some optimistic 5,000, not knowing if that's what was going to happen. And and we had, Project hooked up with Ryko Distribution in 97. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so the album, I mean, Remnants was already a year old when we hooked up with them. And it, I don't know, let's say it's already done six or 7,000 copies. So it was kind of not a new album, but it still did like surprisingly well because then suddenly we were able to get to all the stores where before that we were just selling to, I don't know, I guess Cargo, Caroline, maybe Important, whoever the just you know the distributors were back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, but Remnants is the best-selling band album. I mean, if Voltaire had come out, you know, three years earlier, his would have done even more than they did, but they already did a lot. But it was just, you know, Voltaire's came out right as CDs were starting to, you know, go over the mm-hmm. over the hill. So, yeah, I guess a lot of people who are more mid-90s project maybe weren't as, you know, aware of Voltaire and how much Voltaire did for the label and how much, you know, we did together. Um, Black Tape, Voltaire opened up one of our tours, he and Gregor, maybe eight shows or something like that. And that was when he was still new and people, you know, didn't know him as much outside of New York City. So he just came around and a lot of his shows now are just him on acoustic guitar. So he's able to do just the shows on his own. And I mean, I was, I was mixing him at those shows and it was just, yeah, he just entertained people wherever we went. So it was really nice. (laughs) I read an interview too, that with the distribution, you said there was a point where you could sell a thousand copies of something like faith in the muse, I think was the example you used in the interview. Oh, through our mail order. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is, in our era, it's just unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that, yeah. That's not even something you put out. That's a, that's something you, you distributed. But yeah, that was on test records at that yeah. time. And also stuff from Hyperion. I mean, whatever, let's just say um, Jitan Damon. We oh, get yeah. like 500, 600 Project Pitchfork. Just stuff that I wasn't a fan of. <laughs> that's, yeah. But, but you still could. Just, yeah. Because, well, there wasn't another way to get it, really. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some of the stuff on, I guess, Hypno Beat, the. Uh, there were some things on Hypno Beat that might have had other distributors because they were a little more, I don't, they weren't neo folks, but they were the sort of military, militaristic industrial or whatever it was back then. And some, some other avenues to get that stuff out. But yeah, um, what was the band? Um, TGVT. You know, um, and then like 
from cold meat, the Mordhund and stuff. I I don't I think we were doing maybe in the two or three hundred range on cold meat stuff, but it was still tons, you know. Wow. Four. And, and you end up yeah. you end up working with Arcana as well, right? On projects. Yeah. They they did stuff on cold meat. I love love those so records. much. Yeah, they have two um Le Serpent Rouge and Raspail came out on project and then they put out a bunch on cyclic law. Right. But yeah, and then um All My Faith Lost, who were on Cold Meat, they're Italian. They might have been on whatever the side label was for non-Swedish bands. Right, right. But yes, I reissued their two on Project Once Upon a Time. Um, But yeah, I I don't know if you remember the Heavenly Voices box set. Oh, yeah. I mean, my living room for a while was this like table of Heavenly Voices box sets with a towel, a sheet over it. (laughs) I just had so many. And we just, just things just kept selling. It was insane. And it was wow. without selling to distributors, selling to stores. It was just through the mail order catalog. Right. What a yeah. time. That's a good sure. style. You yeah. just put a sheet over it. It's a table. And there were so many. They were big. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. I, there's when an amp table next sets. to me right now. Oh, we figure <laughs> out. I mean, an we figure out how that's to a make, table. make things uh-huh. work at being in, you know, small. Yeah. Los Angeles apartments, yeah. Amps become tables. You put a, yeah. put a put a put a sheet over them. Put a little piece of wood to make them flat. And hey, you got a table Sell, selling records. <laughs> and then when it's time to record, just put something pretty on in. top. It's a new table. Yeah, that's right. You were so great with the physical stuff. I, you know, we we pulled out Lush Garden. I love the the vellum. Oh yes. I guess over. Uh, you know, pocket that you put them. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How how did you who did who, did you see another release that had that same style, or was it just something you came up with? Do you remember? Nineteen ninety three. No, that's <laughs> ah, a oh, long yeah, yeah. time ago. <laughs> but but I mean, the thing, like you're asking about quantity. My guess is, you know, I pressed three thousand of those to start, and it was like a time where you could make more deluxe things because you were making enough that they weren't outrageous per thing right Right. you know and that's one of the things i like about the kickstarter is the people like black tape like the deluxe stuff but if you had to justify it selling the number of cds to retail stores it just it wouldn't make any sense but having backers into it you know makes it possible just like i was telling somebody i mean if i sell lps to my distributor to sell to record stores i make like a dollar a record you know right (laughs) After all the hassle and all the delay, and then it's like, yay, I made a dollar on that. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, it stores, stores make 50% of what a record costs. And they have the overhead of the employees and the rent, you know, but Mm -hmm. it's still the big chunk of what the physical medium costs at a retail is going to their budget. As we're come to a close here, we got the new Black Tape album, so that's out now to pick up. Now, no shows really on the horizon. That's just really not in the cards, partly probably because the band is intercontinental at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, we haven't played in 10 years now. Yeah. 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 And really not not necessarily <laughs> thinking about it. You know, it's always like, yeah, if Lisa Gerard asked me to open up, I would do it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) But it's a sort of where we do end up playing at clubs. It's not necessarily the right environment for the kind of sound. And it's just, I mean, uh, playing live doesn't need to be profitable, but everyone in the band, we're like not 23 anymore. So it's a different time. Yeah. Take a couple of weeks off your job and have someone else pay your rent and come on the road and not get paid. It's just yeah, <laughs> yeah free beer is less appealing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. so, no, and, no, so there's about a record every or released every two weeks on project now. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, very busy. <laughs> I think just to, I think today just got an email for the a new Eric Wolo. Yeah, album. it's it's coming out in two weeks. It's the pre order now, and um, there was a Steve Roach last week yeah yeah actually yeah i actually think literally you responded to my email about this and then directly after that it was the i was like look at that this is great already a new thing announced as we're going into the interview so best place obviously follow project on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. that's going to be probably the best way to stay totally updated not and and get on an email list is that 
Yeah. Those are the two best ways to do it. So we have the Black Tape for a Blue Girl band camp. So to keep up specifically with Black Tape for a Blue Girl. And I think there's a subscription service on that. Correct? Yeah. If you follow at Bandcamp, you keep up. Excellent. So we will have links to all this stuff up for everyone to check out. Sam, this was so cool. We were so excited that you were just agreed to do this. You've been so, so cool. This interview has been great. This conversation has been great. Absolutely inspired by your energy. Uh, absolutely. Still going 83, 2022. It doesn't matter. There is no stop for Sam, for Project, for Black Tape, for Blue Girl, or any associated acts. Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, hopefully someday we will get to hang in person but until then this was this was fantastic so thanks so much yeah it's really being isolated like most of us it's nice talking to people who care and know what you know know the history it's really really fun Mm -hmm. awesome that's great thank you you so much. much you've been listening to noise extra noise extra is brought to you by chondritic sound a home to noise artists for over 17 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noise extra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise. <laughs>